In this week's podcast, Sister Hannah Troxell begins a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. We are starting a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's in Matthew 5. You've probably read it. You've definitely read the first part of it in Math, um, the Beatitudes, which is what I'm going to talk about today. Um, we have Jesus. He goes up on a mount, mountainside, and the disciples come, and he preaches to them. So what better thing to listen to than just a sermon from Jesus? Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is not a new law, which some people like to say. They say it's just an elaboration um, of the Mosaic Law. But Jesus gives it a higher spiritual content right off where the sermon begins. The Beatitude immediately takes us into a realm beyond Moses completely. It is an elaboration of his new commandment to love others as you love yourself. Matthew wrote this to the Jews and it is, it's agreed that Matthew is writing this to the Jews. He puts a lot of emphasis on the kingdom of heaven right at the beginning of the Sermon in the Beatitudes because, as we all know, the Jews had a false understanding, this materialistic concept of the kingdom. They thought they were going to have some new political power and that they were going to reign. And Matthew just starts off the sermon. When Matthew is writing this down, he just explains exactly what Jesus was saying, that the kingdom of heaven is not some political thing that's going to be on earth. It is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus lays it out in the front to explain the kingdom as spiritual. The order that the Beatitudes are listed in are very crucial. They're very important and they're very planned. Imagine that, Jesus planning out a sermon, making it important. This is Jesus speaking. He explains that there must first be an examining of yourself, a looking at yourself, an emptying of yourself, to be poor in spirit, mourning for sin and a meekness about you. Then when we are empty, we've got to be filled. And so then we have a hungering and a thirsting of righteousness And that is when we are filled. And when we are hungry for God's righteousness, we take on a certain disposition to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be a peacemaker. And none of these are anything that comes natural to anyone. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm really glad that I wasn't supposed to just have automatically be born with these because I am not always a peacemaker. And I am not always merciful or pure in heart or meek or poor in spirit. However, when we come to God and we realize what his expectations are for us, we can become all of these things. And that is what the Beatitudes are all about. So we're going to start off with an emptying of ourselves, the examining, the looking at yourself. The first three Beatitudes are poor in spirit. It's the first one. I'm going to turn in Matthew 5, verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is the consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. Nothing we can produce. It is nothing we can do in ourselves. It is the awareness of our utter nothingness. So we look at ourselves and realize how not great we are. Have you guys ever felt not great. <laughs> I have felt that way many times. 
But that doesn't always mean it's a poor in spirit. It's a different kind of when you realize what God expects of you. It's like looking at a mountain and you have to climb it. However, you are completely incapable. That is poor in spirit. Realizing the expectations that God has for you, you and I are, don't even come close to being able to match what God expects us to do. The world says, however, you should believe in yourself. What you are capable of is the most important thing. What can you show for yourself? That is what the world wants to look at. But this is wealth of spirit. And while that is a popular concept in the world, wealth of spirit, it has crept into our church. And wealth of spirit. Well, what can you do? Well, what do you do? What, what do you say about yourself? But we have to remember that that is not what God wants us to do. He says, rely not on yourself, but on me. Don't rely on your abilities, but rely on me. Depend on me. Poor in spirit does not mean poor in terms of finances. Poverty does not equal spirituality. So that is a wonderful thing. We are not required to be poor in our finances. I believe that the Lord wants to bless us. So that's great. But becoming poor in spirit, how do we do it? What can we do? Well, Brother Lopez has already helped us out. Thank you. Read your Bible is the first thing. And now you're going to connect 15 every day, and you're just going to be one step closer. Poor in spirit. It looks like reading your Bible, reading his law. Look at what God expects from you. Look to him. One writer said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So if you're one of those people and you feel like, well, I'm not really sure that I have like a list of talents. I hate when people ask me like, what are your hobbies? What are your talents? I'm like, I suddenly forgot everything that I enjoy doing or anything I'm good at. It's just really awkward when people ask you that, but it's, it's really true. But God is saying, you don't have to bring anything to me. All I'm asking for is your broken and willing vessel. Some examples in the Bible that we know of are David, Isaiah, Gideon, and even Peter. It's not a suppression of personality. This doesn't mean that you don't get to be yourself in the kingdom of God. It just means you have to recognize how little yourself means. Truly a great thinker is a humble man. It is a little learning that is a dangerous thing. This doesn't mean that you can't be educated, well-rounded, have knowledge about things, feel confident. It just means you have to realize how little that means in the presence of an almighty God. And then we're going to move on to the next beatitude. Verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning inevitably follows being poor in spirit. When we see how awful we are, we should feel awful. As we confront God and his holiness and contemplate the life that we are meant to live, a life above sin, we see ourselves, our utter helplessness and hopelessness. We discover our quality of spirit and immediately that should make us mourn. That should make us feel the separation from God. But it doesn't stop there. 
We mourn also for our sins, the things that we have done wrong. So we mourn that we can't meet the expectations of God. And then we mourn for what we have done wrong, the sins we've committed. And then there is a mourning for others and their sin. We see that as a people, we are, a sin, we are in a sinful state. We mourn for the very nature of sin, for the fallen man. For example, when a friend or a loved one walks away or refuses truth, we feel that rejection and we mourn for that person. We've all felt that. We've all been in a situation where we've seen someone backslide or someone not, or someone refuse to pick up this truth. And you feel that hurt, that pain, that rejection. And God is saying, I want you to mourn for the fallen man, not just yourself, but everyone's sin. I want you to mourn for that. The world's motto, however, is completely different. Eat, drink, and be merry. They want to forget their problems and live life to what temporarily seems like the fullest. The world is more interested in using entertainment as an escape. They say, I don't want to deal with problems, so I'll just watch six hours of TV and not spend any time with my breaking family. It is a culture problem, but unfortunately, we have welcomed the problem in our churches. If a sermon doesn't entertain us, we check out. We can't get through two hours without checking some type of social media. Meanwhile, the Lord is trying to get us to stand up against our culture, to mourn for our culture. He is calling us to be ye separate. The next part of the verse is so encouraging. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. A man who mourns for sin is a man who will repent. We are comforted in knowing when we ask God for forgiveness, we are covered in his blood. What a beautiful thing. As we mourn for the sinful state of man, we can also glory in the return of Jesus to take his bride. We are comforted in knowing he is coming again for us. Luke 6.25 says, Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. If only, if you only rejoice now on temporal things, for eternity you will weep. I'm not sure if you remember Brother Mangan's message at Mark Conference, but it really just struck something inside of me. He talked about not placing the emphasis on the temporal things. It doesn't matter about the experiences that you've had, the places that you've been, the things that, the car that you have, the house that you have, the education that you have. These are all temporal we have to focus on the eternal things we all then we come to the next beatitude meek verse number five blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth the worldview the more you assert yourself and express yourself the more you organ the more you organize and manifest your powers and ability the more likely you are to succeed and get ahead but Christians must have a different view. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, and they alone. So if you think about it that way, they alone shall inherit the earth, just the meek. The first two Beatitudes, we were looking at ourselves, but now we come to others looking at us. How do we respond when someone else sees our utter nothingness? When someone points out, how much of nothing we are. 
Of course we don't like it. No one likes to be critiqued like that. It's in our flesh. But that's what God is asking for us to walk through. Being meek does not mean to be easygoing. I don't always feel easygoing, so I was a little comforted in that statement. In fact, the meek man is one who may so believe in standing for the truth that he will die for it if necessary. You cannot truly be meek until you see yourself as a sinner. Example, Abraham, when he let Yacht, his younger nephew, choose the better land. Meekness. Meekness involves being patient and long-suffering, especially when we suffer unjustly. A man who is satisfied and content. We cannot truly be meek without the help of the Holy Ghost. It is nothing you can create on your own. I'm really glad that I have the Holy Ghost and that while I have this huge mountain to climb, all these expectations, I'm supposed to be meek, I'm supposed to be this, and here I am like, there's no way. I am like that. The Lord says, that's why I want to fill you with my presence because I'm going to help you and take you and walk you through the process. So we have the first three, and then we come to kind of a turning point, a deliverance from self and a looking to God. That verse is verse 6, and we have, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. We could again do the same thing I did last time, and they alone shall be filled. What a horrible thought that the rest of the world that is not hungering after God, that's just hungering after the next exciting party, the next exciting thing they can do or see or go, and they're never content in their lives. Righteousness is justification and sanctification. To be hungry for righteousness is the desire to be free from sin in all its forms and in its every manifestation. It is the desire to be apart from sin because we know it separates us from God. And it is the desire to be right with God. It is the longing to return to original relationship of righteousness in the presence of God. It's the desire to be free from the very desire for sin. Man in his sinful state sins. Even after he sees his sin is wrong, he still wants it. But the man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is a man who wants to get rid of the desire for sin. But not just on the outside where everyone else can see. He wants it to be gone on the inside. We must Become hungry for righteousness. Hunger and thirst are not passing feelings, at least for me. Hunger is something deep and profound that goes on until it is satisfied. It is painful and increases in time if not fed. It is hard to think about anything else when you are truly hungry. At least that's how my mind works. Most of us have probably even said something like this. Well, I have to eat first. When we are hungry enough... We make it a priority. We know without it, we will become weak. We must become hungry and thirsty for righteousness, a craving to live right. How could we tell, but how can we tell if we're really hungry for righteousness? Like, am I really hungry or am I just kind of hungry? If we see ourselves through our own righteousness, 
then we are not hungry for God's. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. If we pat ourselves on our own back, build up our own name, then we are clinging to our own. If you really want something, you act on it. Hunger, it's an everyday thing. We find time for what we are hungry for. Bible reading, if we have time for it, then we're hungry for righteousness. We must be more interested in the word of God than everything else, every entertainment, every movie, every social media, every time you hang out with your friends. We must have a craving for righteousness. Put yourself in the way of righteousness. If you're hungry for it, you put yourself there. That's in the house of God here tonight. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night young adult prayer. Every time the doors are open, that's where I want to be. That's hunger for righteousness. Blind Bartimaeus could not heal himself. He was blind. When he heard that Jesus was going this way, he got as close as he could. He could not give himself sight, but he put himself in the way of getting it. He said, I can't do it, but I'm going to get to the place that I can. People who hunger after righteousness don't miss opportunities of being in those certain places where other people seem to find this righteousness. I think this means our faithfulness to church. I think it means our faithfulness to prayer. And if you haven't been coming to young adult prayer, you're really missing out. So not only are we putting ourselves in the way of righteousness, we're avoiding the opposite of righteousness. If you are hungry for righteousness, there are some things you just don't do. There are some things you just don't say. There are some places you don't go and some movies you just don't watch. But it's not just avoiding the things that we know are unrighteous. It's avoiding the things that dull our spiritual life. We all know in the physical sense we can easily spoil our appetite, dull its edge, so to speak, by eating things between meals. If I have a candy bowl on my desk, which I often do because I love to give candy to my students, it doesn't stay there very long because I'm like, oh, just eat one piece. Oh, just another one. Well, I'm giving them all one. I should have one every class period. So by the time lunch comes around, I'm like, well, I've had like 17 candy bars today. So just kidding, guys. Not that many. But really, it dulls your appetite. You're really not ready for lunch because your appetite's gone. It's the same in the spiritual realm. We must be careful what we are putting before our eyes, what we are spending our time doing. God is asking us to be hungry for what is right. We must heed his word. Avoid the things that dull your spiritual life. Don't spend all your time doing whatever you just like when God is saying, hey, I want you to hunger for me. I want you to thirst for me. It is a fascinating thing that when we're hungry, God can fill us when we're hungry for righteousness. But we must be careful not to be hungry or blessedness or happiness. All the Beatitudes start out like this. Blessed are the. But that's not what we're supposed to hunger for. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. We need to be hungry for right living. Our culture seeks after happiness and the good life, but they find themselves empty and incomplete. Their search never ends and they never feel full. That's why so many 
millionaires result to alcohol and drugs and suicide because they're never full. Even when they feel like they have it all, they're not full. Their search never ends. But when we seek after righteousness, the blessedness comes. We must choose to be different than our culture and hunger after what God has promised to fill us with. It is a fascinating thing when we hunger and thirst after right living. God fills us. And the more he fills us, the more our hunger grows for more righteousness. So are you filled? Are you blessed in this sense? If we aren't filled, then we are not hungry for righteousness. But if we will make time for God, our hunger for him will grow. And it will not be like the world where they're always hungry but never filled. We'll be hungry for more but still filled at the same time. What a fascinating thing. So now we have, we've had the first three where we looked at ourselves. And now we have a desire for God and we were searching for him. And now we are looking at our disposition. The first three Beatitudes emphasize the importance of a deep awareness of your need. Then we hunger after God's righteousness. We are filled. The following three Beatitudes are looking at the result of that satisfaction, the result of being filled. We become merciful, pure in heart, and peacemakers. Mercy is the sense of pity plus a desire to relieve the suffering. When you feel sorry for the person, but also your action to change it. You all know the story of the Good Samaritan, the other people who passed the man on the ground who was beaten and left after they came and robbed him. They might have felt compassion. They might have been like, oh, there's a guy there. Oh, sorry, man, not today. But they were not merciful. The Good Samaritan, the one who acted upon what he felt and knew was right, he showed mercy. When we see people in their sinful state and we mourn for them, we must act out of mercy. We come to see people not simply as people we don't like, but as people that we pity. We would be in the same place they are without the grace and mercy of God. We should feel that. We should know that. We should think about that. Our attitude must be to look beyond their faults and see their needs. Encourage them to live a life above sin. We should pray for them. We know these things, but it's hard. You know, like when you see the person that's like standing at the corner begging for money and they have the cardboard little thing and you're like, that's so annoying, like get a job, right? Yeah, but what about the lies and the addictions that are in their mind and not letting them break out of their bondage? Because guess what? They're not going to break out of it without God. They're not. That's why they're still there. And we just say, I'm not giving them money. Which, right, like giving them money, they're probably, they probably are going to do something awful with it. But an act of mercy, what would that look like? What would happen in our city if we started acting on mercy? like the good Samaritan who stopped on the road and helped him out. We should be praying for them. If we have truly experienced what it means to be forgiven, then we can forgive. What makes us merciful is the grace of God. 
but the grace of God does make us merciful. So it comes to this. If I am not merciful, I have never understood the grace and mercy of God, which means I am outside of Christ and I am unforgiven. But blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Then we come to our next verse. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In general, the scriptural usage of the heart is the center of the personality. It is where everything else flows from. This includes the mind, will, and heart. Why do I do these things? What are my motives? Blessed are those who are pure, not just on the surface, not just to the people I want to be pure towards, but what is really in my heart. Blessed are those who are pure from the outside and the inside. Every source and every action of my being must be pure. So what does it mean to be pure? It means not to be a hypocrite. It also means to be cleansed or without defilement. It means to be like Jesus himself who did no sin. That means dying daily so that my heart can be pure. Blessed are the pure in heart in actions, motives, words, deeds. Blessed are the pure in heart for what they want to watch and what they want to do. For they shall see God. Let's go to the next verse. The peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the children of God. Or owned of God. Owned by God. Owned by the God of peace. I don't know about you. But I want God to call me his own. I want to be a child of the most high king. That means I have to become a peacemaker. Once again, that means not on my own. Thankfully. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. A peacemaker is not someone who says, I will do anything to avoid all trouble. The mere avoidance of war does not make peace. It does not solve problems. A peacemaker passively is obviously peaceable because a quarrelsome person cannot be a peacemaker. But he makes peace actively. He does all he can to produce peace and maintain it. He's even prepared to suffer wrong and injustice in order that peace may be produced and God's glory magnified. He is willing to sacrifice himself for peace for all. James said we need to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. So forgetting self, humbling self, we should follow in his footsteps who did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. We should be a reflection of God's peace. He is a prince of peace. Our goal should be to share 
acceptance of our faults. And when we do that, that is when we shall be called the children of God. And now we come to the last beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be, or sorry, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecuted for righteousness' sake. We have to make sure we include that last part, for righteousness' sake, for right living. Not just persecuted because you're angry all the time and people can't stand you. Persecuted for right living. This is not adopting a martyr spirit and desiring persecution. This is being persecuted by people or doing the right thing. To be like Christ, we have to become light. Light always exposes darkness, and the darkness, therefore, always hates the light. Persecution is not confined to the world. Unfortunately, Persecution has often come from within the church. But who were our Lord's chief persecutors? The Pharisees and scribes, the Christians too, were persecuted most bitterly of all by the Jews. But we must remember, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Sister Barkas said something the other day while I was at school and I really liked it. Do what's right with the right attitude. Whew, that's hard sometimes. But what great advice. Do what's right, have the right attitude. As we continue to live righteously, Above sin, we must remember that our attitude must be right. That if we do suffer persecution, we still have to keep the right attitude. Or, or we've lost and missed the whole point of the beatitude. Jesus explains that there must first be an examining, looking, and empty of self which is poor in spirit, mourning, and meekness. Then when we are empty, we have a hunger and thirst for his righteousness to be in us. And then we walk with a filled life. A life that this world, no matter how full people may seem or how they come off, they're not full. They're desperate for something, always searching but we get the opportunity to be filled. When we are hungry for his righteousness, we take on a new disposition, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker. The man who is truly forgiven and knows it is a man who forgives. That is the whole meaning of the Beatitudes. That is the whole meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm so thankful to know that Jesus, when he was here walking on the earth, was like, I'm going to take time out and I'm going to show you 
what's required. Matthew wrote this down, and he, he was writing to the Jews, and he, he was making sure they had to know that this was not just some new law for us to follow. It wasn't just a list of things to quote off and say, well, I've been merciful today, and I've been a peacemaker today. It's not like that. God is saying it's got to be deeper. If you want a blessed life, we have to follow the Beatitudes. We have to be a part of it. But not just because we want a blessed life, but because we want to have relationship with him. What a challenge. But that's what the Beatitudes are all about. It's a challenge that I myself can never meet. But with the help and the grace of God, he is saying, I want to take you to a new level. I challenge you as this, as we start off this new, what is it called, Brother Lopez? Exercising our faith. I, th- I think this lesson is really good to st- come right before that. Exercising our faith. Because when we're exercising our faith and we're plugging in and we're making time for him in our lives, he is going to come in and say, hey, I want to change some things. I want to move some things around. I want to clean up a little bit. You haven't been as dedicated as you need to be, but I want to I want you to live a life above sin. That's what we're required to do. If we say we're saved, what has he saved us from? 